0: Well, uh, everyone, open up your Bibles to the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter two. Acts chapter two, uh, beginning with verse fourteen. That's where we're going to be, and we're going to be uh, we're going to go through verse forty one. It's a big uh, portion of scripture to to go through today, but I think that it's a mistake to separate it. Uh, a lot of people do that, but I think you really lose a lot when you try to pull this message into chunks. and so, uh, we're going to go through all of Peter's sermon at Pentecost this morning. And while you're moving there, um, first of all, if, if, uh, thank you for supporting Awana. Um, thank you to those of you who are serving in Awana. I know that it gets exhausting. I know that after a long day of work or, or uh, work dealing with your kids or whatever it might be, that going to... Um, A church full of 50 or 60 little kids is not always what you want to do or prefer to do, Um, but Iwana's been great this year. We have a great team. Thank you for supporting it uh, with your prayers. Thank you for supporting it financially. And uh, if you're not a part of Awana, you can feel free to come by. It's it's always my favorite time is at the beginning of the year when those little guys show up and, and their their eyes are about as big as dinner plates and uh, they don't really know what to do and they're they're kind of scared, kind of excited and uh, but. Specifically, my favorite part is watching uh, on night one or two when the new kindergartners are in Sparkies and they go into game time and they're super duper excited and, and uh, you get these little guys that have never stood in line before and they're supposed to run in circles but they run that way and um, anyway it's it's just a lot of fun. I wanna really is a lot of fun. Uh, albeit it is exhausting and I understand that and so I thank those of you who have really devoted your time and your efforts to serve um, to serve the church in that way, and so we we really appreciate that. Now, hopefully you're at Acts chapter 2. I gave you enough time there. I'm a little long-winded. But Acts chapter 2, we're going to begin in verse 14. And um, we're just going to read the whole thing. I know it's a big chunk to read right here, but that's what we're going to do. Acts chapter 2, beginning with verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. The men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be called, uh, it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and I I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, souls. Okay, that was a lot. I had to take a deep breath there. Um, So what we have, last week um, we talked about Pentecost and the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ has ascended into heaven and um, he gave his last command, and that's in Acts 1.8, essentially the Great Commission. And so uh, Pentecost comes. It's a big feast. It's a big celebration. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit arrives. The Holy Spirit arrives to, about, to the church of about 120 people. So uh, the church now gets the Holy Spirit, and they come out, and they're speaking and uh, the Spirit is performing a miracle to them, and they get noticed, and the people at the festival see it, and they say, what does this mean? Because these, uh, these people, I shouldn't understand what they're saying, but here I understand them in my own language. What does this mean? What is God saying? And Peter stands up, and he's going to explain it to them. And Peter's going to preach one of the most powerful sermons ever recorded. And again, it begins in verse 14, Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. So what's happening is the church is, is speaking and they're, they're celebrating worshiping and uh, those who don't really understand what's happening, they look at the people who are being used by the Spirit and they say, these guys are drunk. They're at this festival. They're, they're already been drinking this morning. And Peter says, well, it's 9 a.m. They're not drunk. They're not drunk. That's not what this is about. And um, to be honest with you, right off the bat, um, it, it, it's, it's kind of funny. It, it's kind of funny because, let me back up, all, all around the country today, there are 55-year-old overweight pastors trying to squeeze into skinny jeans in order to to remain relevant to culture. That, that's what's happening right now today, all over the country. And at Pentecost, the church was was acting in such a way they, they could care less what the world thought of them. Okay, the world looked at them, didn't understand it, and their hearts their hearts were hardened and they said, These guys are drunk. And they didn't care. And Peter stands up and says, they're not drunk. It's nine in the morning. It's breakfast time. They're not drunk. They're worshiping. And then he's going to go into his sermon. The Spirit brought power to eliminate the need to to feel cool or acceptable. The, The Spirit brings power to make disciples and not to glorify ourselves. And if we're trying to bring a message of conviction and repentance to people who are really offended by their own sin, then relevance is out of the question. Right, because we're not going to be relevant if that's the message that we're bringing, because the world won't—they won't be comfortable with that. Okay, and so um, they—they can only be—they can only be accepted. Our message can only be accepted by the Spirit's power, not by a a pastor's attempt at wearing skinny jeans or drinking coffee out of organic cardboard. Right? It's—it's not about fitting in with the culture. It's about being used and being faithful. The Spirit brought power that the culture could not understand. Well, we have to balance that. Now, we are not, this church, Heights Baptist Church, is not an attractional church. It's it's not not what we are. It's not what we want to be, okay? But we have to balance this idea of being relevant. We, We want non-believers to be welcomed. And if that's you, we hope that you're welcome. We hope that you feel welcome. We hope that, that you were warmly greeted at the door. We hope that you, you feel at home here because that's what we want. We're, we try to create in this building an environment where people feel welcome regardless of what they believe. But we cannot rely on our own ability to connect with the world. We can't. For those who believe and those who are trying to multiply the church and be obedient to acts one eight. It's not on our ability to connect. We have to rely on the Spirit's power and ability to work in spite of us. And in spite of, really, the offensive message that we're bringing. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, we become fools for Christ's sake. So don't try to appear smart or wonderful or hip. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. So, Peter stands up at a big festival, and he addresses the crowd. Now, um, you have Passover was 50 days prior, and now you have Pentecost, and so a lot of people would stay uh, during this time. Think of it like our holiday season from Thanksgiving to New Year's. It's kind of like it's just like a holiday season for them, and and they're kind of in between harvest. That's what they're celebrating. And so there's a lot of people in the city. Peter stands up at a big festival and addresses the crowd, saying, these men are not drunk. You're witnessing a fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel. If you think that this is all about some guys getting drunk, you're missing the point again. That's what he's saying. And we're going to look at a few things that Peter points out in his sermon. And to be honest with you, it might be easier if this thing were spread apart over three or four weeks but um, you really lose a lot if you do that. And so bear with me. We're going to look at quite a bit here in Peter's sermon. The first thing he points out, the first thing that we see as a result of Peter's message is that God finds you where you are. God finds you exactly where you are, okay? And this can be physically, this can be spiritually. But he finds you where you are. There is, um, there is a, a terrible lie that people believe, Christians and non-Christians alike, um, and and they really believe this. And people think that before you can come to God, before you can turn to Him, before He will accept you, that you have to somehow clean yourself up. Like, so before you can ever even turn to Him, you have to get your life in order uh, before He would ever even welcome you. It's not true. In fact, The book of Hebrews tells us that without faith, it is impossible to please God at all. So you can't clean yourself up enough to be acceptable. If you don't have faith in Christ, you can't please God in any way. So that means that you cannot please him to the point where he would accept you. This is a lie, and this lie is designed to keep you in your own sins. This lie is to keep you separated from the God of heaven. And that's why it's there. And Christians and non Christians alike believe this thing, and it's horrible. Don't believe it. You can't get your life in order before you come to Christ. It's not possible. The thing is, is that God meets you, and He meets you where you are. He comes to you when you're waist deep in the filth of sin. He does. He loves you when you're so consumed with your own glory that you prefer not even think about his existence. He loves you enough at that moment to die for you. God comes to those who have ruined their relationships because of an addiction. He meets us where we are, wherever that may be. It might be different between me and you. And if you're in Christ, you can think back and you can think where he met you. Where, where were you when you got saved? Where were you when, when you realized that you are a sinner in desperate need of being saved? What, what was in your life? What was happening in your life? Where were you? Were you driving down the road? Were you, were you um, in your home, in your living room? For me, I, w- I was a little kid, and I, and I remember specifically uh, being explained what sin is and, and how I'm a sinner too and how I needed to be saved. I also remember exactly where I was when God called me to the ministry. I remember that specifically. God met me where I was exactly when, when he called me uh, in, to ministry. I was in a war zone. And I was faced with—now, my life was a lot better than most soldiers over there, so don't, don't, get, don't get this mistake. But, but I, I, worked at a, uh, I worked at a morgue over there, and being faced with death on a regular basis made me realize that these soldiers are falling, and they don't know what I know. And God used that to take me into ministry when I, when I didn't want anything to do with it. I remember exactly where I was. I remember exactly what I was consumed with. I remember where my heart was. I remember where my mind was. I remember it clearly. And maybe you remember yours too. God doesn't expect you to change before you come to faith in Christ, but he does want you to turn to him in faith. To admit that you need a Savior. Your salvation depends on Jesus Christ, not On your own morality. And we could say that every single week and and people still will refuse to believe it. Your salvation rests in the person and the work of Jesus Christ, not on your own morality. It it does not rely on you. Peter stood up in the middle of, of a crowd of thousands of people and he begins to preach. On that day, God met people exactly where they were on the street in Jerusalem. Some of them had just traveled in for the festival and they were there to celebrate. Some of them had probably, we'll talk about this a little bit later, some of them had probably been involved in the crucifixion of Jesus. Some of them probably, some of the people in this crowd were probably there screaming, crucify him. But he met them on the street in Jerusalem. He met them there. They didn't have to clean up their life and go to him. Now, We're gonna look at two verses here. And we read the whole thing up front. We're not gonna chunk it all together. We're gonna we're gonna bounce around this message. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 23. It says this: This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There's something repeated. We're gonna look at verse 36. We're gonna jump up to 36, but something is repeated and whenever Scripture in the same passage repeats something, really anywhere in Scripture, if it repeats something it it should draw our attention to it. Why is it being repeated? What is being said here? Okay, so verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All right, so that's twice now in this message where Peter is, is standing up and he says, you did it. All right? And again, any time that Scripture repeats itself in any passage, in any one passage specifically, we've we got to notice. we gotta, we got to tear it apart, OK? But twice in this message, Peter tells the crowd uh, about 50 days after the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, "You did it. You killed him. It's your fault. You, you did it." Now, um, what's being said here is, uh, all right, so let me back up again. I'm getting excited, I guess. Um, the next point is that God is honest about, he's going to meet us where we are, but then he's honest about what he finds, okay? Now, this accusation that Peter makes is incredible, right? There are thousands of people in the crowd. Nobody knows how large the crowd is. Nobody knows exactly who is there. All we know is that 3,000 people are saved at the end of this message. So this the church on this day goes from 120 people who are kind of cowering and hiding up in an upper room. Uh, they're praying. They, they're confused. They don't know what to do. They, they're, they're not really sure uh, where to go or how long they have to wait or any of this stuff. 120 people. The Spirit comes in, transforms them. All of a sudden, now they're out. They're, they're speaking in tongues. They're being used incredibly, and Peter preaches a message, and 3,000 people on that day are saved. It's this day that the church as we know it is is born, okay? So, um, Peter says to them in this message, You killed Jesus. You did it. You killed him. So, again, we're about 50 days removed from the death of Jesus. Some people were probably there. There there were probably a lot of people that, that are in the crowd listening to Peter that, that saw Jesus crucified. I'm sure some of them were screaming crucify him. I'm sure some of them, uh, were, I'm sure some of them were mocking him and, and doing that kind of thing. But also, we have to understand that 50 days removed from the crucifixion of Jesus in this big crowd, not every single person in the crowd was even in Jerusalem on that day, right? Not everybody was there. And every single person in this crowd did not hold Jesus down and nail him to a cross. That's not what happened. And so, so what, is, what is Peter saying here? Is Peter talking about literally the people who are driving the nails into Jesus' arms? Is that, is that what he's saying? Or is he saying something more general? Is he talking about sins? is he saying that because of sins because of sin Jesus died is it peter what peter is saying here is that everyone who has sinned had a hand in the death of Jesus every single person who has sinned had a hand in the death of Jesus and we know that every single person in that crowd had sinned they had here we are 2000 years later every single person in this room had a hand in the death of Jesus Christ if everyone who sinned had a hand in Jesus Christ i can jump to the book of romans verse or chapter 3 verse 23 to get the question, okay, well, if, if everyone who has sinned had a hand in Jesus' death, then who has sinned? And the answer comes in this verse, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all. Everybody. Every single person. Every person alive today, every person alive 2,000 years ago, every person alive 4,000 years ago, has sinned. And, and every person who has sinned had a hand in the death of Jesus Christ. The sins that I've involved myself in, the filth that I've that I've gone through, put Jesus on the cross. Jesus chose to go, but nonetheless, that's why he went. Which leads us to our next point. The truth about us, the truth that he finds, is that we're sinners. We, we're sinners. We are. And this means, in in Romans 3.23, it means every single person, every person everywhere. Because we're all sinners and guilty of sin, it makes no sense for any Christian to look down on someone else who's caught up in their own sin. Okay? Because the Scriptures clearly tell us that all of us are fallen. All of us, at some point or another, have sinned then it makes no sense, and, and we rely on Jesus Christ for salvation. We need a Savior. Everybody does. Because of this, it makes no sense for any Christian alive to look down on someone else who is caught up in sin. It doesn't make sense. Our hearts should break for those stuck in their sin. We, we shouldn't compare ourselves to others in, a, in an effort to, to feel better about our own lives. That, to be honest with you, that approach is taken in Luke chapter 18. When we see a person stuck in their sinfulness, we should mourn their position. We should mourn the fact that they're stuck there. We should never puff out our chests and broaden our shoulders in pride. If you stand tall in pride when you see someone struggling, then you're the Pharisee in Luke 18. You're the Pharisee who's standing there saying, God, I thank you I'm not like this tax collector. I thank you I'm not like him. I, I know I, I know. I, do, I, know I, I fail sometimes, but I, I thank you I'm not like this guy. That would be horrible. Jesus doesn't have very good words to say about that guy, does he? If you don't know what I'm talking about, read Luke 18. I won't, I won't be distracted if you flip to Luke 18. It's all right. You stand in pride when you see someone struggling you're the Pharisee in Luke 18. Now, I hear it all the time. I hear it all the time. And here's, here's the way it looks. Okay? Here's the way it looks. Well, Joe Snuffy, he calls himself a Christian. He calls himself a Christian, but you should see what he posts on Facebook. You should see the pictures that come across his page, news, whatever it's called. All right, so first off, Don't talk about him, talk to him, all right? Because I'm not not interested in gossip. Next, address him as though you're grieving over his sin because that's exactly what Jesus did. That's exactly what Jesus did. When we see someone stuck in their sinfulness, when we see someone caught up in that filth, we are in no position to stand tall and compare ourselves because every single one of us was lost and needed a savior every single one of us had to have someone come and save us none of us could do it on our own in all honesty every person here is guilty we're all fallen we're all sinners we're all saved by grace and when we see someone caught up in in something horrible instead of looking down on them and walking away comparing ourselves, we should bring what we have to them. We should demonstrate the love of Jesus Christ to them. Let, let, let me share with you what I have. Look, I, I, I noticed this. Let, 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 me, let, me tell you about, let me tell you about how I got out of that. Let me tell you about where I came from. Let me tell you about where I was and now where I am now because of the one who died for me. Let me tell you about how I've, how I've gotten rid of guilt and anger. Let me tell you how I got away from pornography and whatever else. Let me, let me share this with you. Let me share this treasure with you. That's what we could do instead of walking away and refusing to acknowledge them. Instead of gossiping about them. Let me show you where salvation comes from. All of us at some point in time guilty. Uh, we've fallen, we've sinned, and to be honest, there, there are three things, really, that we're all guilty of. Now, they might, they might look differently in different people, but we're all guilty of these things, and, and we're going to go through them. Okay? So we're guilty of three things. The first one is all of us at some point or another, at some time in our life, all of us are guilty of loving creation more than the creator we love what god can give us more than we love god okay we are guilty of that every one of us at some point is guilty of that we want the blessings of god more than we want god himself we care more about what god can provide and what he has done and what he has made more than we do about him okay and the way this looks is like this i need a new home i i need a new car I want this, that, that, that gizmo on TV, that new computer is wonderful. I need a wife. I need a husband. I need my children to start acting right. I need to get into this college. I need to do that. I need this or that. I need these things. And it can start off being an, a, a good and innocent approach. God, I would, I would love a husband. God, I would love a wife. God, I would love it if my children would grow up to be successful. Those are those are fine, those are good things, but when we say, God, I want this, and we focus, I want this thing, I have to have this thing, God, you owe me this thing. What ends up happening is we want God's stuff more than we want Him. It's idolatry, is what it is. We want creation more than we want the Creator. And at some point, we've all been guilty of it. The next thing The next thing is that um, we think that we should be exempt from God's expectations. We do. We think that our circumstances somehow trump the law, as though God's top priority is our happiness. And let me explain how this looks. God, I I know that lust is wrong. I know that I should have eyes for no one but my wife. But I was just on this one website and I just saw this one picture and I just made this one click and now there it is. And, and so it's it's the it's the, the website's fault. It's not my fault. God, you can't count that against me. God, I, I know that I I know that I should not treat my children in anger, but if you knew my children like I know my children, the way they push my buttons and how tired I was that day, then you would understand. God, I know that, that you expect me to be generous, but money is tight right now. I can't be generous. God, I, I, I don't even know where my next meal is coming from. How do you expect me to be generous? And we say these things, and we say these things, and we say, God, if you knew my circumstances, then you would give me an exemption. If you knew my circumstances, then, then you wouldn't expect this much out of me. I'm, God, if you knew me, I wouldn't have to do what you expect me to do. Some people describe this as saying we think that we're smarter than God. It's a good way to put it, I suppose. The next one we're guilty of, every one of us, is we refuse to acknowledge him as God. This is Romans 1 very clearly. We think we accomplished something on our own, and we refuse to acknowledge God and be grateful to God for doing it for us. We've been guilty of this. Um, and what we do is we refuse to acknowledge that God created us to be us. God created us to be successful in in certain things and to understand certain things, and God created us to do certain things, and he created us for his glory in a certain way. And what we do is we say, yep, I did this, I did this, glorify me, I did this, I did this, I'm wonderful, look what I've accomplished. That's it. We refuse to acknowledge Him. We refuse to glorify Him. We refuse to do it in His name in order to make disciples for Him and multiply His church. And when we live this way, when we live this way, we become our own God. We become our own authority. And our hearts decay. They turn to stone. And we don't even know it. We don't even know it. Peter is telling all of us that Jesus went to the cross for our sin. That's what he's telling us. This is important for us to understand. Jesus died to save us. Jesus died because of what we did, not because of what he did. Jesus died for us. We call this propitiation, which is really pacifying wrath by taking care of the penalty for the offense that caused the wrath. If you've never heard of that word, it's used in Scripture a couple of times. Um, Now you've heard it. Okay, now you understand what it means. Jesus served as a propitiation for our sins, for the things we talked about earlier. Because we're all guilty of those sins. God tells us this. It's not easy when he tells us this. It's not easy for us to swallow. But overall, it's good news. And I don't know that I could, I don't know that I could worship a God that just said, hey, you're great. You're wonderful. You, you, you don't sin. I couldn't worship a God that did that because I know that, I'm, I know that I fall short. I know that I do sin. I know that in a lot of ways I'm wicked. I know that in a lot of ways I care more about myself than I should and I refuse to glorify the God that created me. I know that about myself. If there's a God that's saying, hey, you're wonderful, you're, you're doing everything right, and I can't trust that. I love the fact that God is honest about himself. and as, you re, as we read through the scriptures, he's honest about the heroes of the Bible. Men like David and Moses had serious character flaws. I love the fact that he's honest also about me. He reveals my shortcomings to me. He does that for us. And, and one of the reasons why that's so wonderful is because we can look to him and we can trust him. We could believe him. God saved us from that type of life. God saved us from thinking that we're flawless. God exposes our weaknesses. God exposes our shortcomings. And it's hard when it happens. But in the long run, it's wonderful. The idea that, that we're a sinner offends people because you know, the posture immediately is, is no, I'm not. I'm, how dare you say that to me? But for those with soft hearts, they know. They know it makes sense. They know, yeah, yeah, I know. I get that. I know I've involved myself in that. I know I've created a mess out of that. Those who are aware of their fallenness God said, there's nothing wrong with you. Then what do you do with, what do you do with anxiety or fear, doubt, lust, anger, pride? What do you do with all of that if, if, if you're taught that it's not there? If you're taught that you're wonderful and you're great, knowing full well that you're full of anger, full of anxiety, full of pride, full of lust, full of whatever? You can't believe. You can't believe it. There is hope. There is hope in God being honest with us about us, about the fact that we're broken, about the fact that we do sin, about the fact that he knows that we sin, but he still loves us. He's honest about the fact that he knows that we're in rebellion. We're prone to to wander. God exposes it. The beauty of it is that he saves us from it. And this is is where, you know, legalists just focus on sin and they point out sins and other people and you did this and you did that and you did this and you're so horrible for this. And they forget grace. But the beauty of our faith is God says, here's your sin, it's terrible, it's not okay, it's filthy. But I love you anyway and I'm going to be gracious and I'm going to forgive you. Verses 29 to 32, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. What we see. In this passage, what he's teaching us in this passage is that Jesus' victory over hell is our victory over hell. It is. Despite all the, the sinfulness that we've involved ourselves in, Jesus' victory is our victory. And, and another thing that we pull out of this passage um, is called imputed righteousness. And what this is, is Jesus' righteousness is our righteousness. This gets us... Um, uh, Christ's perfect obedience becomes our perfect obedience. His righteousness becomes ours, okay? We're justified before God by faith as a free gift of grace in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ and in nowhere else. Not in our morality, not in our obedience, not, even, not in our thoughts, not in anything. and Only in Jesus Christ. And see more about that in 2 Corinthians 5. God meets men where they are. He tells them the truth about themselves. And then the gospel attacks them. And, and uh, those that are stuck in their sins, they, they want to be freed from those sins through Christ and counted as righteous with Christ and, and be forgiven and set free from the enslavement. And then in verse 37, the people respond when they hear Peter's sermon This is an incredible part. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? We say this. It's easy for us to read very stoically, and they were pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter and the others, brothers, what must we do, right? That's not how it goes. If you read it, I mean, they're, they're torn up about this. They're talking to Peter. They're talking to the rest of the apostles saying, what do we have to do? We killed him because of what we've done. Now I clearly see what, what, the, what the Old Testament was pointing to this man who we killed, my sins killed. What do we have to do? They're, they're grieving over their sins and they're eager for salvation. So Peter answers their question. But what this shows us, and I'll close with this, what this shows us is the gospel demands a response. The gospel demands a response. Not to respond is in itself a response. I'll, I'll use this illustration. One day, I don't, she's not in here, so I don't remember the exact day, but one day I asked Jen to marry me. Right? I did. One day I got down on one knee and I asked her to marry me. And she responded with yes. Obviously we're married, right? So she responded, she said yes. But if she would have just stayed silent, if on that, I'm, I'm down there on one knee, I'm, I'm giving her her ring, and if she would have just not said a word and slowly backed up, right? Had she done that, that would have been a response. It would have. She, by not giving a response on that day, she would have given me a response. No way, get out of here, right? When, when we hear the gospel... When we hear the gospel, we either respond, we say yes, and we're saying yes to a softened heart, we're saying yes to Jesus Christ, we're saying, I admit I'm a sinner, and I need to repent, and I need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. We're saying yes to all of those things. But sometimes we hear the gospel and we don't do anything. We hear the fact that Jesus is Lord and Jesus died for our sins, sins we know we committed, but we don't do anything, we don't respond in any way, and that in itself is a response And that response is the continuation, the continuing hardening of your heart. That's what it is. And so this little game of, of playing, I go to church and show up, and, and, but I'm not moved, and I have no real desire to s- submit my life to the Lord, and I'm going to hear the gospel and really do nothing with it, um, to be honest, what that is, that's literally taking steps towards the hardening of our hearts. That's what it is. Every time you hear the gospel, you respond. You either respond with the softening of your heart, or you respond with the hardening of your heart. But th- it's one of the two. It's one of the two. Uh, let me just remind you, we are all going to die at some point. And, and I don't, uh, unless the Lord returns first, we are all going to die. I don't know when my day is coming. I have no idea no idea when I'm going to die. But what I do know is in the next 12 months, people will die. People will die. Maybe it's me, maybe it's someone else, but people will die in, the, in this year. And we have to be ready for that. I, we have to be prepared to stand before the Lord. Here's where, I, here's where I think the uh, the happy stuff when we gather has to be kind of slowed down a little bit. There are those that we know, even in this room. Listening, those of you in this room listening to me say this, presenting the gospel, and your hearts are hardening right now in this room. In this church, in in the last service, last week, the same thing. It happens. We present the gospel and people don't respond to it and their hearts get harder. They go farther down that road of separating themselves from the holy God of this universe. The gospel demands a response. To not respond is a response. That's clear. Now, understand it is your decision to take that step. To take that step towards hardening your heart but you don't have to. You can turn around. This is the beauty of our God. You can turn around and seek forgiveness. You can turn around at any point and say, God, I am a sinner. God, I repent of my sins. God, I desperately need you. God, my faith, my hope, my everything is in Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. That's my only hope because I'm broken and I can't do it on my own. When, when, we, when we give up this idea of I've got this, I can, I can do this myself, and we say, Lord, I don't have this. I need a Savior. I need you to intervene. Man, that's when things change. That's when your your heart is softened. That's when your faith becomes real. That's when the Holy Spirit of God gives you courage to stand up and convicts you of your sins and and... Forgiveness comes. And you're able to let go of whatever it is you're dealing with. So the crowd says, what do we do? What do we do? Peter essentially says, repent, be baptized. Repent of your sins, be baptized, and multiply the church, is what he's saying. It's beautiful. At the end, 3,000 people do it. 3,000 people, probably many of whom were there when Jesus was crucified, screaming, crucify him, spitting at him, mocking him, whatever it was. These people come forward. Their hearts are pierced, the scripture says. They repent of their sins. They put their faith in Jesus Christ and they're baptized. 3,000 people respond, turning the church from 120 scared members into a 3,000-member megachurch willing to face intense persecution that you and I probably never will experience. Because Peter stood up and preached a difficult message, but the Spirit worked through him. So then my question then is this. We're going to pray in a minute, and the worship team is going to come up and close with a song. Are you going to harden your heart? Is your heart hardening right now? Or is it softening? Are you willing to admit that you are a sinner and need a Savior? And if you are, I would love to talk to you at the prayer wall. I would, I would love to, to open up the Scriptures. I would love to pray with you. I would love to answer questions. I would love to, to have that discussion with you. If you're not ready to commit to Christ, I would still love to talk to you and have that discussion with you and explain why Jesus is the only way, why your only hope is in Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much once again for today, Lord. And God, God, you are wonderful. God, you are amazing. Father, we, we know that we have failed you. We know that we have sinned and it's filthy and it's it's horrible that we choose to glorify ourselves over over you. But God, what is amazing and wonderful and perfect is your love, your grace your mercy, and your forgiveness. God, we could never thank you enough for the fact that you you love us enough to save us still. Father, I pray that if there is anybody here who does not know you, that that you would reveal yourself to them, that your spirit would pierce their heart, and that they would be willing to go to the prayer wall and and talk to the elders or talk to me and, and, and open up the scriptures. And God, I pray that you would lead them to you. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we worship you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ.